architecture is the first encounter we have with reality. And we usually think of architecture as meaning buildings, but of course architecture shapes the entire environment. In philosophy, in art, in architecture, maybe, there's this constant tension between wanting to press forward and forge new ground and also revise or undo the past. There's a very important notion there about processing time that we're no longer allowed to engage in because of the way in which the rhythm of life is propelling us to bypass the reality of what used to be thinking just 20 years ago. Welcome to another Art After Nature podcast with me, Giovanni Aloy, and Caroline Picard. It's a great pleasure today to have here with us Graham Harmon, who certainly needs no introduction, and yet here we are. Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Liberal Arts Program Coordinator at SciArc, Harmon earned his BA from St. John's College, Maryland, his MA from Penn State University, and his PhD from DePaul University. He is the author of 19 books, most recently Art and Objects, published by Polity in September 2019, and Artful Objects from Sternberg. Graham is the 2009 winner of the AUC Excellence in Research Award. And in 2015, he was named by Art Review as the 75th most powerful influencer in the international art world. And in 2016, he was named by the best schools in their alphabetical list as one of the 50 most influential living philosophers. It's great to have you here with us, Graham, in occasion of the publication of your book for the Art After Nature series published by University of Minnesota Press. Thinking through object-oriented ontology and the work of architects such as Ram Koolhaas and Zaha Hadid to explore new concepts of the relationship between form and function. This is the first book on architecture by the founder of Object-Oriented Ontology, Triple O. Architecture and Objects deepens the exchange between architecture and philosophy, providing a new roadmap to Triple O's influence on the language and practice of contemporary architecture and offering new conceptions of the relationship between form and function. Before we talk more specifically about your book, Caroline and I would like to know a little bit about object-oriented ontology today. How far do you think it has gone at impacting the contemporary philosophical landscape? What about its relevance today? And especially, what about the controversy, the pushback, the resistance that so strongly still persists? There's been a lot of influence of object-oriented ontology, triple O, uh, in an interdisciplinary sense. I'm just finishing up co-advising a PhD dissertation in Europe, for instance, that's applying triple O to understanding the work of the, the late Spanish architect, Enric Morales. There was a, uh, a conference held at a business school a few years ago on the influence of triple O on organization studies. So it's somewhat Latourian in that sense, popping up in all kinds of different disciplines, um, art and architecture, of course, since I now work in an architecture school. In philosophy, that's been less the case because philosophy is still very much dominated by this conflict between analytic and continental philosophy. And Triple O doesn't really fit in either of those baskets, even though I come from a continental philosophy background myself. So in philosophy, you're still seeing some activity at the fringes by only a few adherents in each camp. It's stronger in the inter interdisciplinary network of, of disciplines outside philosophy. And the kind of pushback we get really varies depending on the fields, depending on what the ruling discourse is in the field. So for instance, in architecture, 
there's a group of enthusiasts, but a lot of the pushback comes from one of two different camps. One of them is the Deleuzian camp that dominated for a whole generation of its own and maybe resents somewhat that Tripolo has come in and taken over parts of the discourse. And so there's some pushback from those people. There's also pushback from another wing of architecture that is somewhat tired of philosophy having an impact on the discipline and want to focus on disciplinary craft issues and are tired of this long string, Heidegger, Derrida, Deleuze, of philosophers since the late 60s, early 70s, who have been impacting their discipline a lot. That's an area where the pushback varies depending on which camp you're hearing it from. In other fields, for instance, there's a lot of political critique of Tripolo in the sense people will claim falsely that there's no politics built into Tripolo, which isn't really true. There's been more written about politics than people think. It's simply not what they mean when they say politics. These days in the humanities and social sciences, when people say politics, maybe maybe also in the arts, what they mean is what already recognizable form of the left are you signing up for? Because it's, it's assumed in advance that we all need to gather together and denounce capitalism and blame it for everything, including the degradation of the environment. And of course, there's some truth in that. But the modern left, as we know it, is a product of modern philosophy, which is what Tripolo critiques. I've written about this quite a bit. The fact that modern political theory in both its left and right versions comes out of an interpretation of, of human nature in the state of nature. And so it's generally the leftists who think that we're nice and we're corrupted by society. And it's the right that thinks that we're naturally evil and there needs to be a crackdown to stop us from abusing each other and engaging in violent insurrection. And uh, I think what's wrong about that is that it assumes that politics is something sui generis simply arising in the human sphere, and it's not. Inanimate objects play a much greater role in politics than people are willing to admit, starting with geography, but then going far beyond geography to things like tools. There's a few points in your book where you describe how it makes sense that architecture and philosophy have a friendship or a dialogue because in a way they both create or frame, I don't know if those are the right or the words that you would use, reality, where they try to create depictions of reality and then those, those frameworks are interactive to some extent, whether it's a philosophical framework that you're using to engage with the world or like a city building that you're navigating. But it seems like in both of those depictions, there is a latent politics that is constantly activated by people engaging with the subject. Yes, my, my friend David Rue was the first one I knew who put it that way in my presence. He said, uh, architecture is the first encounter we have with reality. And we usually think of architecture as meaning buildings, but of course, architecture shapes the entire environment, sometimes including things as basic as rivers and forests and how they appear to us. And yes, that's the point where architecture meets philosophy. They are both basic statements about the nature of reality, what's important about it, how it is accessible to us. And you're right that there is a, a political aspect to that always. It just seems to me that these days people are too quick to reduce everything to the political, just as some scientific philosophers are too quick to reduce everything to its underlying material. And this actually gets into what I was talking about with formalism in the book, the need to talk about things to some extent non-relationally as self-contained, not that anything's ever totally self-contained, but that things are partially self-contained and not they don't simply dissolve into some holistic atmosphere that's either political or something else in character. Well, and that's something that I was thinking about too, in terms of how you point out that even the most in situ artwork, for instance, or architecture, even though they are contextualized, 
there is a way where we say the architect or the builder or the viewer or the artist is selecting certain aspects of the environment to focus on and relate to rather than the entire context. Right. I think what I was talking about there is I was pushing back in that case against the notion of site specificity, which of course has been a big notion in the art world for a long time and is is always an issue in the architectural world because a building is supposed to fit in its site. And here's where I took the side of the formalists a bit. I should back up a step here and talk about the fact that formalism was a big concept in my book, Art and Objects, a couple of years earlier, that this coming book develops in the field of architecture. Formalism can mean different things in different fields, but it always means that there's a certain self-containment of the thing being talked about. So a formalist approach to art, of course, would try to downplay the social-political context of the work, the biography of the artist or the author, and so forth. And of course, that shouldn't be pushed too far, because works do interact with other works around them. Harold Bloom made his whole career off talking about how writers are in rivalry with past writers. And uh, there's definitely a sense in which that's true, that nothing exists in total isolation. But when you call a building site-specific, for example, it's never totally site-specific because every site is almost infinitely complex. And I see this when I sit on juries for student architectural work at SciArc. Students are always very selective about what aspects of the site they choose. So if, if they have a site next to a river, Certain students will make the river the focus of the building, and certain students will more or less downplay it and just put it off to the side. And so you're always making choices about your context and your site. And I've just estimated maybe a half dozen aspects of your site are what you're going for. And so it's not this all or nothing alternative of either an artwork is completely self-contained or else it's dissolved into this holistic web that includes the entire universe ultimately, but that artworks, like all other objects, are somewhat selective in terms of the the aspects of their environment that they're either capable of responding to in the first place or that they choose to respond to. Just like the fact that humans and dogs inhabit the same worlds, but our specific sense apparatuses have different ranges of things that we can detect that other animals cannot. So dogs obviously have a much better sense of smell than we do. You go to a restaurant, you come home, your dog is smelling your lips. I'm glad humans don't have that ability, but uh, it's one of the things that makes dogs what they are. Graham, you seem to have a tendency in your articulation of object-oriented ontology to pretty much constantly look for what's not fashionable. Like you, you focus on what's not fashionable, fashionable. Like I remember you wrote an essay in which you applied object-oriented ontology to art. It was one of your early works uh, and you focused on Cezanne, who was probably one of the least popular artists in the in the context of contemporary conversations. And uh, I also remember that you spent quite a substantial amount of time focusing on Grimberg, who is probably one of the least popular uh, figures, regardless of his persisting influence. And now formalism, you know, these are all topics and figures that have now been relegated to the background of contemporary conversations. And I wonder about what it means for your articulation and theorization of object-oriented ontology to build upon these sort of forgotten or non-fashionable pillars. One thing is that I don't worry so much about that because the fashions will change. I do it in philosophy too, by the way. I make significant use of Aristotle, who is the currently most unfashionable of all the great philosophers because nobody likes talking about substances anymore. Everybody likes talking about holistic interactions and and everything's in flux all the time. 
I think this is largely just because if something's out of fashion, it's probably currently underrated if it's of a certain rank. You know, Cezanne is obviously a great painter, whether in or out of fashion now. And so if, if they're out of fashion, it's probably because the current environment is not equipped to appreciate what they brought us. But that always changes. The next generation, it could flip or it could go into some new configuration. And anyway, I don't, I don't think in those terms. I just go towards what interests me and let the chips fall with it where they may. And in the case of Clement Greenberg, who I know has been badly unpopular since the emergence of pop art at the latest, I simply find him to be an extremely powerful writer who had points to make that we forget at our own peril. And I find myself going back to him again and again in a way that I don't feel myself drawn to even some of the very significant critics who are more in the center of things today, whether it's Rosalind Krauss or, or Hal Foster, people who have a lot of interesting things to say. I just feel more of a, a vibe with Greenberg. Obviously, he could be very harsh, but he's also a wonderful writer. I'd say one of the best of the 20th century. Uh, there are a lot of things, I think, wrong with his approach to art, but there are some lessons there that we're not getting from anybody else right now that I think we need to, to recall. And the same in philosophy with Aristotle. So it's not a, a conscious set of decisions that leads me to those sorts of figures, but um, maybe there's a pattern. Maybe it's that I, one of my ways of thinking is looking at things that have been left behind but not fully exhausted. Yeah, I think that there seems to be a pattern. And I, I think I'm interested in how that shapes object-oriented ontology to be such a, an original lens through which we can understand everything around us. But at the same time, it's what maps your inquiry. And I, I think it's not a little aspect. It's not a, an irrelevant aspect of how object-oriented ontology is shaping up. I think it's very, it's defining it in, in positive ways, according to me. I, I, I always look at object-oriented ontology as a tool that it's necessary because it does things that other philosophical kinds of approaches don't do. And that's also perhaps one of the reasons why it keeps doing what others don't do, because it, it comes already, bubbles up from a different ground. One of the things that I find reassuring is the fact that Triplo's growth has been slow but steady, which Warren Buffett would call a value stock, right? That it's, it's offering something that nothing else is offering and that it's going to increase over time. Occasionally, we get people calling us a trendy fashion, but that just isn't what the record shows. Mm -hmm. The record shows a slow but steady growth in popularity of Triplo as more people discover it and people are finding value in the things we've written and it's a growing corpus. Yeah. I agree with you 100%. And I love it that this is also a very unpopular metaphor that you've chosen in order to map what's going on. <laughs> That'll be, let's have people tuning out immediately as they hear a comparison between a philosophical stream of thought and the market. But that's great. <laughs> Philosophy always has to push back against the pieties of its time, even when there's some truth in the pieties. And these days, anti-capitalism is the leading piety. And so I do enjoy the shock value sometimes of bringing in business metaphors, mm -hmm. banking <laughs> stock metaphors. And yeah, I, I think uh, to go back to your earlier question about how I pick unfashionable people, well, again, you're, you're buying low, right? If you're buying Aristotle or Cezanne stock, you know it has value, but it's currently low. So you're getting a good deal. But no, that, that wasn't my conscious process, but that's another way of looking at it. Hi, I'm loving this. You've got a nose for, for business there, <laughs> for philosophical business, we could say. Fashion or no, I guess I, I sort of want to take Greenberg more seriously, at least in the context of this book. Greenberg seems really interesting to me as somebody who suggested that painting died, and that's something that the legacy of painting has had to deal with since. And I mean, I remember, I wish I could remember who wrote the article, but there was this amazing article that I read when I was in art school that was like following Greenberg 
everyone decided that, and, you know, abstract expressionism, everybody decided that painting had died. They buried it. They had a big ceremony. Every 10 years, they exhume the body of painting, decide whether it's dead. It's dead. They bury it again and so on. It seemed like in this book, Graham, you were suggesting towards the end that maybe there is a similar point in architecture where suddenly there's this question about what architecture can do next post-collage. And I, I don't mean to kind of jump straight into the tail end of your book, but I thought that there was an interesting relationship or correspondence to Greenberg as a presence in your book who says painting's dead and it's clearly not dead. And then this kind of dangling question at the end of your book as to whether or not anything new or more can be done with architecture. I think usually something more and new can be done in any field. It's just that people get tired and it takes a spark of innovation to see where to go next. Um, I went through graduate school with people saying that big philosophy with a capital P is over. It's only going to be applied and focused on small problems. I've never believed that. You're admitting your own lack of imagination if you say something like that, I think. There are plenty of directions for architecture to go in now. I'm just simply not the one to do it. It has to be architects who decide where to go next. All I can do is offer commentary on where we've been, what some of the philosophical implications of it are now, and, and where it might go next. But also my sense was that was also part of the interest in mapping out this dialogue between architecture and philosophy is to show how it's a generative relationship for both fields, potentially. Potentially. In practice, philosophy has taken very little from architecture in return. But as I argue in the book, that's because philosophy has been stuck since Kant in this idea that there are two basic kinds of things in the universe, human thought and everything else. And that's not a situation in which philosophy is going to be equipped to learn much from architecture. Also, something that occurred to me uh, simply while I was writing the book is that obviously there's a long interaction of philosophy and architecture. If you go back to Plato's influence in the Renaissance and Kant and Hegel in the 19th century, but really, the golden age of architecture drawing on philosophy has happened since the early 1970s till roughly the present. And I think that's connected with the um, gradual collapse of modern architecture. I mean, not that modern architecture is not still with us, but collapse of the ideology of modern architecture, that everything is supposed to be functional and expressive rather than historical and, and so forth. It's really uh, when that um, dominant influence of modernism and architecture began to slip a bit that architects turned to philosophers, first Heidegger, then Derrida, then Deleuze, all of them making inter interesting contributions to the discourse. And I suppose Triple O is the fourth in that sequence, but we're still pretty early uh, and we'll see where it goes next. Graham, can you tell us more about how the idea of object-oriented ontology and architecture came about in the context of, of the book that we're publishing, but also more in general in the, in the journey of object-oriented ontology. I remember that, uh, for instance, many years ago, I can't actually put my finger on it, it was probably around 2011, 2012, you gave a talk at the ICA in London, uh, and it was one of your early talks about contemporary, well, it was modern art at the time, you, you were talking about ready-mades, and it was one of the early moments in which you were expanding into art and, and perhaps even already containing the germ of architecture. So I was wondering about that trajectory and if you could tell us a little bit about how it led to the book that we're publishing with you. Yes, in both of those cases, I was brought in to those worlds by others, the art world and the architectural world. Art started a little bit earlier. The first time I realized we were having any sort of impact at all in the art world was this show by Joanna Malinowska in New York in 2010, 2009, somewhere in there that was called Time of Guerrilla Metaphysics, 
a reference to the title of my second book. And that was a widely reviewed show and she was interviewed about it. And I followed that uh, simply because I was surprised that we were having an impact that quickly in the art world of that magnitude. Um, architecture probably started a few years later. And there was one stray invitation I had to the AA in London in 2007 by Theo Lawrence and Tanya Seams. And that was an interesting, colorful experience in its own right. But the sustained engagement with architecture happened in uh, beginning in fall of 2011 when David Rue, who was a St. John's classmate of mine, I know Caroline also went to St. John's, so a lot of St. John's energy here on the podcast. David Rue was an old classmate of mine who I'd lost touch with for, oh, geez, over 20 years. We were never especially close. We knew each other, played saxophone together sometimes. I knew he'd become an architect and I wrote to him about it. Never heard a response. Apparently, he never got my letter. But then he showed up for a series of lectures I gave in New York in the fall of 2011. And that's when he started telling me, you know, your philosophy is really impossibly important for architecture. And I asked him how. That was news to me. And finally, I, I took his word for it and I asked him for some reading advice. I think I asked him for 10 classic works and 10 modern works on architecture to read. Just because, okay, 20, 20 books or even 15 or 16, that's not enough to master a field, but that's enough not only not to make a fool of yourself in a field, but also to be able to profit from overhearing conversations and things like that. It's you know, 15 to 20 books in a field is enough to know, know your way around what the main controversies are, if you're choosing the right books. So he, he gave me that. I've since prepared similar lists for philosophy, since whenever I tell this story, people ask me for philosophy lists of that sort. But that's, that's all it takes to get started. And then you get the bug once you've read that much. You want to keep reading more and more. And so I spent a lot of my time now in the SciArc Library just reading more architectural theory and history. Uh, and then eventually in 2016, it was time to leave Egypt. My wife got a job in America. We moved back to America. I tried commuting to Egypt from America for a year, which was impossible. Probably the only person who's ever commuted from Iowa to Cairo, Egypt, ever in the history of humankind. So then uh, I started asking around and this thing at SciArc came up. And so I became a full-time architecture school employee, which means um, I'm not teaching architecture classes because I'm not allowed to. Liberal arts has to teach non-architectural content, according to the accreditors. But it means I'm hearing lectures all the time. I'm having conversations all the time. I've got a library that's architecture heavy. And that's where this book came from. It's the fruits of my first cycle of six, seven years at an architecture school. We'll see how long it lasts, but I don't expect it to be my last book on architecture. And then, of course, it also fit with art and objects as an extension of that. Again, related to architecture and objects, the sort of within OOO, and maybe you can talk a little bit succinctly about these delineations, but between OOO, my sense is that there's like a fourfold system of relations that are sort of a central tenet of the philosophy. And my sense was that, again, from reading your book, this corresponded really elegantly with architecture, which has an exterior impression. There's functional elements, formal elements. There's a whole interior experience that has to be accounted for. Sure. You mentioned this fourfold structure. And where that comes from is Triple O grew out of what was originally my PhD thesis on Heidegger at DePaul. And of course, what Heidegger is most known for is this idea that being hides or withdraws behind beings in the plural. Being is that which is mysterious. It's that which can never be made present. It can be hinted at, whether through poetic language or through moods. Um, and so Heidegger is an explicitly anti-rationalist philosopher. Whatever becomes present to our mind is not reality itself. And there's a bit of Kant in that, obviously, the thing in itself. And that's opposed by the whole Hegelian tradition and also by 
the phenomenological tradition from which Heidegger himself came, of Edmund Husserl, that we focus on what's given to consciousness. For Heidegger, we focus on what's not given to consciousness uh, because there's this rumbling depth behind everything we're conscious of. So that's the basic Heideggerian distinction that everyone knows about. And a lot of people assume that that's all Triple O is doing. Uh, one recurring critique of Triple O in the architectural world is that we're just saying that objects are mysterious and they have variable outlines and that's not enough to be a design theory. Okay, fair enough, but that's not what Triple O is really about. Triple O is also about adding this, this second crossing axis that comes from Husserl, which is the difference between an object and its own qualities. And this goes all the way back to Aristotle in a certain form. The idea that Socrates and Socrates sitting and Socrates standing are all the same thing because Socrates is a substance and whether he's sitting or standing is an accident. And that just sounds like kind of boring old middle-aged metaphysics, except that then Husserl brought that into the realm of appearance. That um, I look at an object and I'm always only seeing one, what he calls an adumbration of it. I'm seeing a lemon or an apple just from one side. I'm not seeing all aspects of it. I'm seeing it in a specific mood from a specific angle in a certain amount of sunlight. And so what phenomenology is about for Husserl is trying to strip away all the accidental features of a thing and reach the essence of it. The difference between Husserl and, and Aristotle is that for Husserl, there is no real substance. There is no real world. The world that we see and the world itself are one and the same world. And then Heidegger complicates that by saying, no, it's not. The world that we see is something that is never commensurable with the real world. The real world hides or withdraws. So what Triple O is really about is the fact that there are two kinds of objects, two kinds of qualities, right? There's the real, which is the hidden one. And then there's what I call the sensual, which is the one that we can encounter directly. So you have two kinds of objects, real and sensual, two kinds of qualities, real and sensual. And then you also have a loose relation between objects and their own qualities. This is really the key to Triple O. The fact that an object and its qualities are in a very tense relation. People are in different moods every time you see them. You can paint things a different color every time, every day, if you want. They're still the same thing. And since you have two kinds of objects and two kinds of qualities, there are four possible tensions, right? You can have a real object in tension with its real qualities, sensual object with its sensual qualities, real object in tension with its, its sensual qualities, and a sensual object in tension with its real qualities. And you can study all four of those. And the name that Triple O gives to that study is aesthetics. But aesthetics is a broader term, not just for arts, but for any kind of tense relationship between an object and its qualities. And so aesthetics becomes the core of triple O, not in the sense that we think everything's an artwork or that we think everything is just decorative, but in the sense that the object quality tension that lies at the basis of aesthetic experience is actually the basis of all reality for triple O. And so, yes, in that book, as well as in the art book and in my book on Lovecraft, the horror writer, I've tried to talk about how those four tensions play out in given genres of art. But there's a part, for instance, in this book where you talk about how architecture doesn't have the same need to withdraw as, say, artworks, which I thought, yeah, somehow it maybe a building is able to represent those tensions in variation somehow more immediately and constantly than, say, a painting. I was probably talking about that in the passage on time, where I talked about how a painting, yes, you can look at a painting for a long time and keep discovering new elements, but there's a sense in which the whole painting is given to you at once. And for formalists like Freed, that's essential. For them, the key to avoiding what they call theatricality is the fact that the artwork is given in an instant. Freed is very critical about Tony Smith's experience of driving down the unfinished New Jersey turnpike, which Freed calls totally theatrical. I think he goes a little far on that, but I would agree that painting is in a sense given instantaneously. A sculpture may be a little less so, 
But architecture is more on the side of literature and cinema in the sense of requiring the time. Uh, you have to let the time unfold to experience the artwork. In literature, but especially in cinema, um, you have to let that time unfold in a specific order at a speed that's not chosen by you. If you're watching a film, you have to sit there and watch it in the amount of time that it runs. I suppose you could pause it and go take a break, but ideally you should let, really let it run through without a break. Literature, you're, you're meant more to pause more often, maybe read it over the course of a few weeks. Whereas with architecture, what's different there is you can reverse order, you can walk through a building. The architect may suggest the way you're supposed to go through a building, but you don't have to follow that in most cases. There are different ways you can go through the building. And so architecture is, in a sense, an experience of memory, um, that you are holding different experiences together in a certain sequence. And so the form of a building is not instantaneous. It's diachronic. And that's something that makes architecture distinct from a lot of other arts. That's one of the things I was talking about. There's also the fact, of course, which for Kant disqualified architecture as a fine art, the fact that architecture is useful. Because, of course, for Kant, the artwork has to be completely self-contained. It can't refer to anything outside itself, including the pleasure of the viewer in seeing it. He puts architecture just above the creation of water fountains as being a very low form of applied art. In my book, Architecture and Objects, what I tried to show is that, of course, you can't remove all function from architecture. It would just turn into glorified sculpture in that case. But what you can do is derelationize the use of architecture. You can derelationize its relations, which sounds paradoxical. But I mentioned in the book, there are a couple of different ways you could do that that have already been discussed by others. One of them is Aldo Rossi, one of the most influential architectural theorists of the 60s. His book, Architecture in the City, is in many ways a critique of what he calls naive functionalism, the idea that a building should be visually expressing the function that it has. And what Rossi says there, and of course, he's working in an Italian context, and it, it's no accident that he's Italian, because in Italy, you're surrounded by history everywhere, and it still functions as part of everyday life there in a way that it doesn't in most countries. And he points out that lots of buildings change their function over time. And also, a lot of buildings never had a clear function. A monument is a good example of that. Monumental architecture is the condition of an architectural work that doesn't have a specific function, but somehow still serves to organize the space of a city. The city is built around the monument rather than the reverse. So it's like this anti-functional black hole lying at the center or near the center of cities, these monuments. You know, there isn't really a function for the Washington Monument, even in an American context. There is. I mean, honoring George Washington, I guess. But that's not really mostly what it does. What it mostly does is it's just this weird monumental thing that organizes all the space around it. So uh, that's one way you can, so to speak, withdraw the function of a building from its function. The other way comes from this very interesting article that Jeffrey Kipnis wrote on Rem Kohlhaas. He's talking about Kohlhaas's failed entry for the Tate Modern Project in London. Kipnis says he's glad Rem lost that competition because it would have destroyed architecture as we know it. Kipnis's reading of that building is that it was mostly an infrastructural project. It was simply designed to bring as many people through it as conveniently as possible in the smallest amount of time possible. So it's not really architecture. And of course, Kipnis belongs to the formalist camp that Peter Eisenman leads. And so Rem Kohlhaas is in some sense their enemy. Sometimes, at least, they like to read Rem as a, as a program-oriented architect who's simply trying to fulfill an interesting function with his buildings. There's a whole counter tradition that, that reads him as a formalist in disguise, but I'll leave that for another time. What Kipnis points out is that the, the Tate Modern design by Rem Kohlhaas didn't need to be an art, art museum. It's functional in this very abstract way that doesn't even refer to the specific use for which the building was meant, which he sees as another sign of the, that the destruction of architecture is underway in this design. Whereas for me, that means, oh, that's great. He's creating 
a function that is not tied to any specific function. So it's a non-functional function. It's a non-relational relation. Kipnis has this other metaphor I like, which is where he says that Rem Kohlhaus, I don't remember, machete or something, he's hacking away at the design brief, hacking away the skin and the muscle until only the nervous system of the building is left. And I think that's a wonderful metaphor, violent though it is, that Rem is, is creating this, like an abstraction of what a building should be in this case. So that's another fine example of a, of a non-relational building that still nonetheless serves a relational function. That's, that's really what the book is about, trying to derelationize both form and function in architecture, because form and function have been the two main terms in architecture, arguably since Vitruvius, the, the earliest architectural writer we have, but certainly since the mid-1700s, when Carlo Lodoli first started talking about form and function as two separate aspects of every building. And then it became key to modernism with the idea that the form should simply express the function and the associated pushback against that by postmodern architects. But uh, I, I was trying to come up with a, a non-relational conception of both form and function in the book. Graham, do you, um, do you have a sense of, or can you envision how object-oriented ontology might impact architecture in the, in the practical realm? To some extent. Uh, the interesting thing is that architecture, kind of like philosophy, is a field usually dominated by old people. And so the generation I'm seeing now, my own generation and the one younger, who have picked up some triple ideas, are still in the early stages, not people who have piled up a lot of commissions yet, maybe some here or there. The people who are being hired are still people like Frank Gehry, who's over 90 now, Rem Kohlhaus, who's got to be over 70, Zaha, the late Zaha Hadid was in her mid-60s when she died, I believe. And so it's older people usually who are, who are actually building this stuff and shaping our urban environment. And these, of course, are not people influenced by Tripolo. They were already professionally formed when I showed up. So maybe 20 or so years before we see whether or how much uh, O architecture is, is out there. Uh, there have been some things that have gone up. Uh, Michael Young's apartment complex in Mexico City, he credits O with some of that. Some of Mark Foster Gage's work, uh, Tom Wiscombe and others who have drunk deeply at the Tripolo Fountain. And it just, it just remains to be seen how successful those various careers are, how influential they are. But um, there are plenty of articles already about how would one would go about doing these things. Uh, to speak about Tom Wiscombe's article, I think it's called Discreteness or Towards a Flat Ontology of Architecture. He talks about three different ways that you can point to Tripolo-like tensions in architecture. And all of these three, interestingly, were known in previous architecture. They just weren't given the theoretical significance they have now from a Tripolo standpoint. One of them is you can raise a building on a plinth so that it's somehow decontextualized, separated from its environments. That's a well-known architectural strategy. There is uh, what Wiscombe calls the objects in a sack method, where you have a kind of loose outer envelope that only hints at what the interior forms are. And then he also has what he calls tattoos, which is where the, um, the surface patterns of the building are out of joint with the underlying structural logic. And so you're reintroducing a tension between the inside and the outside. But then there's also Mark Foster Gage, who doesn't focus on the depth dimension at all, which people assume is necessary to triple O, but it isn't because you can still have tensions on the surface, right? Between the ornamentation and its specific qualities. And so there are lots of different ways uh, you could go about using triple O methods in architecture as in the visual arts. It sounds like here too, you were playing the long game, right? We're returning to your, your market analogy, like waiting for uh, architects to grow older and really put triple O to, to good use. It reminds me of Duchamp. I was just thinking about that. You know, you, I think one of the most original aspects of Duchamp's approach to um, his practice is his art. 
was this notion of not making work for today's audiences, but for audiences that might come up 50 to 60 years from now. And then, of course, the, the trajectory of his career proved him right, because it's during the 60s, not uh, when Fountain was first placed on a, on a pedestal, that he became Duchamp. It's just all that process and waiting, procrastinating, planting seeds and waiting for them to germinate that, I think, made him who he became. Quite remarkable. And one index of that is the fact, I, I wrote an article once where I pointed this out, that if you go through Greenberg's collected criticism, and Greenberg wrote about everything. He went to every show, wrote about everybody in the art world. Up until 1968, I believe, there were only two mentions of Duchamp in his entire written outputs. And then, of course, starting in 1968, he becomes very vehement in denouncing Duchamp. So it just shows how Duchamp's status changed. He became someone Greenberg had to fight back against as an enemy, whereas for all those decades, he simply wasn't. I guess until the late 50s, early 60s, when Rauschenberg and the others brought Duchamp back. And now I, I read something else that I think is true, which is today, many artists would rank Duchamp higher than Picasso as influence, which is remarkable when you consider that Picasso was a, an all-time prodigy, dominated the art world for decades. Duchamp was considered kind of a, a prankster at the time. And now Duchamp is the one who's rated higher. It's, it's really remarkable. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. I, I think it's partly because of the way art, contemporary art is, is taught in um, art schools. You know, students are directly and indirectly bombarded with Duchampian notions, whether they are overt, whether they are embedded. But I think once students come to grips with the notion of what a ready-made is, it's over. You know, they, they've entered a new, actually, it's not over. It begins. They've entered a new dimension of art making, art thinking, processing what their practice can accomplish. And I don't think Picasso quite did that in his career in terms of opening doors. But of course, it's, there's so much there. I also want to follow up on what you said about playing the long game. In a way, that's true, except I don't know about Duchamp. In my case, it's not a game. In my case, it's simply that I'm often not as impressed as others by the most recent trends in any area. I think I often want to anchor myself in what I consider the most recent classic in a discipline. And in my own case, that was Heidegger. Um, you know, For all the bad things about the man, I simply was never convinced that even the things that happened in France in the 60s and 70s ever quite reached the level that, that Heidegger was at in terms of raising the real philosophical questions. Coming out of St. John's, I didn't have this ultra-contemporary education. I had an education that emphasized classic texts from ancient Greece to the present, and that gave me a good resistance to fashion, I think. And simply go back and look at what's the most recent thing that you're sure is rock grounds. And in the case of philosophy, for me, that was Heidegger. Whatever bad things you can say about Heidegger, and there are many, that is rock-solid bedrock that you can build on. And yes, there are things worth finding in Derrida, Foucault, Deleuze, but I'm not going to be too distracted by those. Um, it's going to take a while to go beyond the solid bedrock that, that Heidegger gave us. And so it's, it's less playing the long game than, than simply my belief that history is a long game, that uh, things happen more slowly than people want to realize sometimes. And so patience is needed. Also, the fact that fashions can turn around very suddenly. We've had this Duchampian art world now since the 1960s in some sense. Is that just going to cumulatively continue forever and just continue to develop in that same direction? I think it's unlikely. I think it's more likely that certain neoclassical elements are going to spring up in unexpected form and certain formalist elements will spring up. Philosophy too. I think some of the older stuff is going to come back, like substance. The fact that people make fun of substance is a concept now, but Aristotle, Aquinas, Leibniz, that's a pretty impressive historical axis. Um, I don't think substance is going to disappear. I think it's going to come back. And Triple O is, sees itself as part of that historical trend. 
For some reason, this makes me think, so when I was reading your book, I picked up on a few phrases that I loved where it would be like um, primitive shapes or archetypal solids, which just made me imagine, and I don't know if this is the case, but it made me imagine that one of the things that architects have to struggle with a little bit, which seems similar to artists and maybe similar to philosophers, is that you have to somehow negotiate these original building blocks, whether it's like Euclid, like Euclidean shapes, or, you know, the Renaissance masters, or, you know, whatever. And so that was like another moment that I I laughed was when there was this description of like the blob and how amazing the blob is as this pre pre shape concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Greg Lynn's contribution to architectural form, and the, the critique I would make of that is that it's too much like the pre Socratic aperon, this idea that reality itself is this blob like thing that broke into pieces later or will be returned to this blob in the future. And uh, the problem with that is, why do you ever go from the blob to having lots of different pieces? You just end up with these creation myths, kind of like the ones you get in pre-Socratic philosophy, whether it's mind made it spin really fast and break into pieces like Anaxagoras, or Pythagoras said the blob inhaled the void and created these bubbles in it. And that's what I worry about with all these theories that individuals are derivative. The world itself isn't cut, carved into individuals, just the mind somehow breaks it up into pieces. I don't think that works. But does it feel like, I mean, maybe just because we're talking about those fields, but in philosophy, in art, in architecture, maybe, there's this constant tension between wanting to press forward and forge new ground and also revise or undo the past to find a new beginning or point of departure. We're all building on what came before, and the past is continually reinterpreted and uh, anytime someone claims to do something completely new, it's never true. But that also doesn't mean that there's nothing new under the sun. There are plenty of new things under the sun, but they often involve recombining things in new ways. Not just as a collage, because it has to work also, right? You have to put pieces together from the past that work. I certainly feel that way in philosophy. This is why I, I went back early to Aristotle. Lately, I've been going back to the medievals, because I think people like Aquinas and Scotus have a lot to teach us. In Egypt, I got back into medieval Islamic thought from which I learned an immense amount. And uh, there's always more in these works than people suspect there is. That's why they've lasted a long time. I think philosophy risks losing something when it tries to be too ultra contemporary in its concerns. We talked about this, about playing the long game, which I've said isn't isn't really a game. It's just the way I see history is working, that uh, not necessarily everything that happens is an important shift in trends. I guess, Graham, there's a very important notion there about processing time, digestion time, that we are not no longer allowed to engage in because of perhaps the way in which social media is shaping our thinking or just the way in which the rhythm of life is propelling us to bypass the reality of what used to be thinking just 20 years ago. Another consideration that I think is important is that I think sometimes from, a, from an American perspective, as, as far as I have experienced it, Europe gets lumped in as an homogeneous cultural reality. Right. It can. I I wanted to add, though, that when you said some people say the time for patience is over, I would agree in many political areas that that's the case. So the most dramatic example in the United States being police violence against black Americans. I think the time for patience is, is well past on that. And so there are issues like that that you can find where patience is the wrong word. 
But when you, anytime you get close to the theoretical side of things, patience is required because a lot of these radical new philosophical theories coming out really aren't always as radical as they think they are. So for instance, you have a lot of people today saying you need to think of everything as being in flux and constantly changing instead of being static substances. Well, this argument goes back to ancient Greek philosophy. Um, the idea that everything's in flux has actually been one of the cliches of the 20th century to today. It's, it's always been the opposition camp there since Bergson, at least. I'm not saying it's only a cliche. There are arguments to be made on that side as well, but it's, it's something that Aristotle was already dealing with in his works. And so the idea that somehow you're immediately politically liberated if you think that everything's changing all the time and nothing has any stable identity, no, that's, that's not an urgent political thing. That's, that's one camp in a philosophical debate that's been going on for millennia. It's not immediately liberating in a political sense. So if there are political problems where the time for patience has passed, those are going to be dealt with on a level that isn't necessarily bolstered by any particular ontological theory. You can be for or against substance and still think police violence against black Americans has reached outrageous levels and needs to be stopped now. So I don't think that you're going to find any inherent guilt uh, for Western philosophy in that, except insofar as you could say Western culture has always been a, a white dominated culture and so forth. Sure, but I don't th think that invalidates reading Aristotle and Kant. It's a, I guess it's, it's part of a broader question that also has um, very much been present in conversations about art, right? The disassociation between uh, the person and the artwork and also parts of the thinking of an artist that don't align with our expectations or the work of art and how we negotiate these differences. And I, I think we haven't gone very far in finding plausible solutions. It feels to me that the argument bubbles up and dissipates depending on what inflames uh, a conversation. And we, we tend to go around in circles. In, but, but I think that the question that is raised here is very important because, of course, it was the same question that was raised by the death of the author that never seems to be addressed in any kind of connection to that very important question. And I think it would be much easier to use a platform, once again, to your point of not throwing away everything that has been already uh, laid, laid down in order to, to build upon it. I feel like sometimes there's uh, very little building happening in some conversations of the kind that we are entertaining now. But I'm also in, in agreement with you, Graham, that there is a, a response moment in which perhaps the response is an overreaction. Uh, and again, I say that in, in the acknowledgement that there is an urgency to changing certain realities, but at the same time, we, we still need to, I think, negotiate that urgency with the need to think thoroughly and also to engage in ways that are productive and, and perhaps more, more fair, perhaps more aligned with the, the, the demands of a future that needs to see us all together, that needs to see us all like working together and thinking together in ways that we haven't actually experienced yet. I had like a question as a sort of tail end question. And this goes back to your book, Architecture and Objects, and also touches on Giovanni's original question about metaphors. But I was really interested in the regular return to water as a metaphor, or as an example, because it seemed interesting that it reoccurred. And also, especially in an architecture book where the few times that I've talked to architects, they say that water is one of the main things that 
concerns buildings. Like you always have to account for where the water goes. So it seemed like in a, in a book about architecture, that seemed intentional to me. Well, water interests me for two reasons. One is it's the classic example of an emergent reality that's not reducible to the hydrogen and the oxygen, right? Hydrogen and oxygen are both gases in their free state and they both fuel fire. Water's a liquid in its natural room temperature state and, and extinguishes fire. And so that allows you to make the argument for emergence that water is more than the sum of its component elements. It's also, of course, as you know, the, the beginning of Western philosophy and science, Thales of Miletus, everything's made of water. I wasn't actually thinking of the architect's interest in it. I was, I was thinking of the philosophical usefulness of it to uh, fight reductionism, the idea of reducing things to their tiniest pieces as being what philosophy should do. I just loved it as a return because, the, you know, we're sort of constantly talking about these, um, you know, concrete material structures. And then it's like, and or let's think about water again. And of course, because of its anatomical structure, but and how it becomes a new thing when once combined, but it also seemed like an apt presence. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Graham, for meeting with us and, and your lovely book. Thanks for having it in the series. Thank you so much, Graham. It's been such a great pleasure to talk to you today, and we very much look forward to your book, Architecture and Object.